Welcome to Holy Shit, We're Alive. I am your host, Doug Cartwright, and every week I'll be sharing my ideas, thoughts, and insights that will inspire you to look at the world differently and possibly change some old paradigms holding you back. Hopefully, by sharing my stories with you, you'll be able to step into the highest, most authentic version of yourself so you can fully maximize your life and your human experience. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Holy Shit, We're Alive. And holy shit, we're with Caleb Campbell. What's up, my friend? Doug, how are you, man? Dude, this is exciting. So we were, we were chatting before we went live. Um, and I kind of, because, and I realized we're starting to get in a really good conversation. So I'm like, we got to hit record <laughs> on this thing. Um, but you had me on your podcast yes. last week. And um, we had a really, really good conversation. And you said something to me, because we're going to dive into your story here. But you said something to me that really, like, it's stuck with me since, and I wanted to dive into it more. And as we kind of get into our, our life paths, but you, you told the story of how, when you were a kid, you're playing football, mm. you scored this game winning touchdown, right? Mm-hmm. Your mom comes over to you. And what did she say to you? Yeah. So she just grabbed my, you know, hot red sweaty face and said, son, you just scored the game winning touchdown. We love you so much, mm. you know, and, what I heard was that, oh my gosh, I'm so deeply loved because I did score a touchdown. And so, yeah, I, yeah we can get into that, but that was a just such a defining moment for me because literally and, you know, metaphorically, life be just became about scoring touchdowns. Yeah. So I talk a lot about, you know, the stories we tell ourselves, mm. especially as kids and how they shape our entire future and the direction of our lives and where we're going. So what, what would you say, what was the story you created that you started telling yourself at that point? Yeah, I think I just deeply correlated um, the, the performance with acceptance. And so I, it was, I think, embedded in the fibers of my being of just like, okay, I am going to satisfy the deep longing for acceptance, the deep longing for approval, the deep longing to belong. I'm going to satisfy that by scoring touchdowns, which can look like any kind of performance driven oriented action. Yeah. And how did that, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, I, I resonate so deeply, deeply mm-hmm. with that, you know, cause it's like at one point we feel like we're not enough. We've, we're not good enough. And then we get like this little hit of validation that feels so good. And it's like, then we crave it. And you mentioned, you said you were longing for it. So mm-hmm. I guess my question is, why did you, is, did you feel inadequate? Did you feel like something mm-hmm. was wrong with you? Did you not feel like you were enough that you needed to go crave that? Or where did that come from? I think physiologically, like we long, even if we look at like, you know, the work around Brene, Bryan, or Brene Brown and the, the science and the data attached to like, we have a, a longing to belong, right? We have a longing to find our place in this world. I think that's innate for a lot of us. Um, maybe arguably for all of us, if we look at the science. And so from a deep young age or from a young age, like there was always this, this deep longing to belong. But I will say not long after that, a story I, I didn't tell you was that I was actually visiting family and it was kind of a, a, not a family reunion, but a lot of family were at my grandparents' house and um, we were all just hanging around. And my uncle at the time was drunk and he was drinking excessively that day. And I had walked into the room that was just all full of family and some of our close friends. And I was very young, you know, six, seven years, yeah, six years old at this time. 
And my uncle decided that it would be funny to pull my pants down in front of everyone. And so mm. I get de-pantsed and then I met as I'm standing there physically, completely butt-ass naked. I get met with just long stares and laughter and finger pointing and just humiliation. And I remember pulling up mm. my pants as quick as I could and running out that door and literally went and hid for hours to the point where my parents finally was like, where's our son? And had to go searching for me and I was hiding in the barn. And I was just so humiliated. And I think at that moment, it's an important story that I've had to unpack because at that moment I was fully seen and it was not enough. I was fully seen and it was not enough. And so I think the way that I would protect myself from ever being exposed again was through the way that I found acceptance and that was through performance. So yeah. those two things kind of collided at such an early age. It's like, oh my God, there's this deep fear of being exposed because if I'm truly seen, you're going to see that I'm not enough. And the way that I protect myself from this deep fear of being exposed is through this outward performance of doing more, being more and achieving more. Wow. Thank you for sharing. And, um, and where to really what it did is it led you to, it actually led you to really great performance. Yeah. The fear, right? man, this is like the thing, like the fear of being exposed hell of a great motivator yeah you know like this fear of like being exposed to seen as somebody that's a fraud or an imposter or not enough like that can take you to great heights in life really mm -hmm. great and so i did learn how to internalize that fear and use it as a driving force that catapulted my life forward yeah so when did you when did you feel like you were like you realized okay i'm a great athlete i'm a great football player and the intensity of focus really increased when were you like okay i'm taking this to the next level man it's hard to to say because i was so emotionally constipated emotionally unaware so unconscious throughout mm. the majority of my life um i knew i was good at because it was it was interesting in high school um you know i am the star athlete in Texas high school hall of fame for football. Like all of these things are, yeah. are happening in my life, but I was also like, never, I didn't do what all the cool kids were doing. So I never actually belonged. I never actually fit in. So I feel like I never really understood how good I was, um, until later on in life and not even in college when I get a division one college scholarship to go play at West point. And I'm, you know, now becoming the second player, in the history of West Point to get selected in the NFL draft. It really wasn't until that moment where it hit me like, holy shit, like I'm, my dreams are coming true. Like mm. for me, it was just like, I performance on the football field wasn't something that like, I was intentionally trying to make this, like to get to the NFL, like my performance was my survival means. Like right. that's all I cared about was surviving and like, and not being seen as a fraud, not being seen as a failure, not being seen as someone that doesn't have what it takes. And so it didn't really correlate until later on when I remember my coach was like, you're going to the NFL. And I was like, holy shit. Like I just did it. Like this just happened. Yeah. So that's incredible. And moving, moving, playing backwards. I want to dive into this. So you said in high school, you didn't really fit in. Yeah. <laughs> did you try, did you try and fit in oh, and just yeah. weren't accepted or just like, what, what was that like? Were you it like trying to go to parties and like not invited or being the weird kid or what was going on? Yeah. All of the above. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was born in the Bible belt of Texas, raised like charismatic Christian, evangelical Christian. You know, I was speaking in tongues when I was six years old and, you know, like 
prophesying and all of that, all of that jazz. And that was my life. And from an early age, I also was raised with a mom who was the God of my life, you know? Um, and it was a very codependent relationship between my mother and I, and she, I didn't have the fear of God in my life. I had the fear of my mom in my life. And Mm. so I knew that my mom, she projected a lot of her unmet expectations that she had for her life into my life. And she started to live vicariously through me from a very young age. And so she essentially would just kind of instill these very fear-driven narratives. Like if you don't get a scholarship, you're going to be a nobody in life. If you don't get a scholarship and make something of yourself, you're going to end up in this, you know, our hometown of 7,000 people and working on the oil field. Like this is your lot. Like you better get your shit together and you better not do anything that can compromise from that. And so I had this mixture of the fear of my mom trying to be this godly man Um, you know, and like try to fulfill God's plan for my life because it was something that had to be attained. And I was so afraid of missing out on God's plan for my life that I didn't do the things that natural students or maybe my, my peers were doing. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't having sex. I wasn't going to parties. I wasn't doing all of these things. So I was always kind of made fun of because of my religious stance, because of where I stood um, in regards to the Christian principles that I held very close and valued at that time in my life. And so I never fit in except when I was scoring touchdowns. I remember, and and you can put a a disclaimer on this, but I was 16 when I wrote my my first suicide note. And it was was right before a, a playoff game. And I remember walking out of my high school that day and I was on the way to commit this act, to make this decision. Cause I was so, I was just so, I was in so much pain, just so much pain. And one of our offensive linemen saw me walking out of school that day and he could tell us something was gravely wrong. And he says, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't live like this anymore. I'm out. And he said, wait, we have a game to win first. Mm-hmm. And it was just like this moment where it's like, holy shit, like who am I apart from this game? The only way I find acceptance in life is through this sport, is through performance. And so that from an early age, it was just like weird Christian principles, um, not fitting in, not doing things that everyone else was doing. And so life was was hell on earth at that time. What did, um, yeah, I resonate with that. I'm, I've had the suicide you know, suicidal thoughts before and they're intense. Um, what did that letter entail? It was an apology for disappointing everyone because there was something internalized early on that was like, if you guys can't accept me beyond this board, there's must be something so broken inside of me. Mm -hmm. Like I just felt the weight of shame and it stemmed back from early things that like I had discussed with my yeah. with those memories. And I felt the weight of shame. And I just felt like something was so, so intrinsically broken in me and flawed. Um, and there was no recovering it. There was no making it. And I just would apologize profusely because I felt like I felt like I was just a mass disappointment on on all areas of my life because I couldn't ever please my mom because I couldn't ever or seemingly please my mom. I couldn't ever seemingly please my classmates, right? I could never, you know, do enough to fit in. And so it just was like a massive, I'm sorry list. Yeah. Um, what was your relationship to the word God at that point in your life? Oh my God. 
it was a very codependent relationship. <laughs> it was, uh, if you're familiar with attachment styles, it was very anxious, attached, mm, and codependent yeah. relationship. This idea of God out there was very much, you know, him, patriarchy, um, very much like I have to, God has this plan for my life and I better not miss out on it. Like God has this plan on my uh, out of my life, and I better I better not I better walk the straight and narrow path so that I fulfill this purpose because that's what life is all about. Um, and so, yeah, did you, feel it like was, God's, did you feel like God's plan for you was to go to the NFL? Yeah, because that was prophesied over me. Actually, mm, at, a, right. at a church service, there was a revivalist that came into town in high school, and was like, it was supposed to be a three day service, and it ended up being forty five days. Every wow. night, every single day, every single night for 45 days straight. And that was kind of prophesied over me that like, you know, professional sports and a voice, you know, for the world to hear and a world stage and all these things. And so that at an early shit. age, was like, holy shit, like the pressure was on. Yeah. Did you feel like you were um satisfying anyone's needs by scoring these touchings. I feel like it was just never enough, right? Did you feel like there, there yeah. was any validation along the way? Momentarily. Yeah. Yeah. Momentarily. It was like, Oh great. I find my place in this world. I find the acceptance. I find the validation. I find the love. I find the affection. I find the support. But next week was a new game. Like where yeah. it was like a whole is starting back over from scratch again. And God forbid, if I didn't perform the way that everyone expected me to perform, what then? Yeah. So you're this stud football player, obviously you're kind of like, you know, the king in, in the athletic world, you get into West Point, which is a big deal, right? Did this, was it the same, same pressure, same, but who, who are you trying to impress at that point? Because obviously you're, community changed, your coaches yeah. changed, right? You're in a different, different scene. Like what, what was the pressures in, in college? It was interesting. Cause I remember the day leaving my high school and heading to West point and I had made this like verbal commitment to myself. And I said, I'll do whatever it takes to make friends. Like mm. I will do whatever it takes to find community. Like I will do yeah. whatever it takes. And so I went to West Point and I became a heathen. <laughs> like, you know, not a heathen, but, you know, drinking now, having sex, doing whatever I can just to fit in. Yeah. And then as a result of like just finding some friends and then my sophomore year, or no, my freshman year at West Point, I started uh, midway through my freshman season and had like a standout game. And that's when I caught eyes and caught the attention of all my coaches and things like that. Uh, but things just shifted when I got into West Point where now I had like a core group of guys that were my boys. Um, and it was interesting too, because I then protected that tribe at whatever cost, like mm, sure. yeah, trying you, to come in. you clung to it. Oh yeah. And then I shunned the very person who I used to be trying to fit in. I was like, you're not coming into our tribe. Like this is my sacred place. Yeah. Like I fought hard for this and I'm going to protect this at all costs. Um, so it was just interesting. But the thing was, is now that I have my tribe and my friends, if they found out the truth, mm. if they found out the truth about who I really am, there's no way that they would accept me. And so this impossible. Who who did you think who did you think you really were? Just a fraud. I yeah. was this fraud of like, oh, y'all think I'm an actual like y'all think I'm a good athlete. Like y'all hold me to this high esteem. I'm actually so broken. I hate myself. I'm embarrassed. I like I'm 
I'm just gross. I'm so broken. That was the internal narrative. That was like what I felt in my bones. Like I am so broken and y'all think I'm this great athlete. God forbid if you see who I actually am. Yeah. And so how did you hide that? It sounds like, cause you have like this group of friends. Rage. And, like, rage. Literally, man. Fucking rage. rage. On the field? Every, on the field, off the field. I remember my freshman year at West Point. So West Point, if you're not familiar with it, it's a military academy. And your entire freshman year, you know, you have these rules that you have to abide by. Like you have to have your hands cupped like in a ball everywhere you go for the entire year. The only time you can uncup your hands is if you are either in your room or you're in a classroom. Other than that, your hands are cupped at all times. What's the intention behind that? I don't get this one discipline yeah, okay. just like doing what you're told having this dis- it's so like stupid where you're just like you know you just want to give them the middle finger and like fuck off you know but it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't do that so there's a discipline to it um and it, and it weirdly kind of breaks you down like it breaks you down over the course of the year and that's kind of mm-hmm. their thought like we break you down to build you up which is all fucked up in and of itself um sure. but there was just like on the field and off the field, I remember it was one time I walked out of my room to go to the bathroom and I had my hands uncupped and an upperclassman like put me on the wall, meaning like on the wall, stand at attention cadet. And then he just grills me. Right. And he is grilling me calling me, you know, I'm a low life. I'm never going to mount anything. I'm a disgrace to the academy doing what upperclassmen do at the military academy. Bro, Doug, I just lost my shit. I started, I put my hand in a fist and I just started beating my own face and just hitting my own face and then hitting my own self and then screaming at the top of my lungs to this guy, like fucking hit me, dude, just hit me. And I lost it. And then at this point he is speechless and everybody from the hall is out in the hall or from the rooms is out in the hallway watching this go down. And I am just in this fit of rage. I see nothing but red. And I just lost it. And I realized that like rage had become my my protection mechanism. It became my survival pattern where anytime I felt threatened to be exposed, anytime I felt like I was going to break down, anytime I felt like vulnerable and you were going to like be able to expose my vulnerability mm-hmm. and use it against me, I did whatever I could to reclaim control of that situation. And that was my rage. And whether that was putting a hand through a wall or raising up the top of my, my voice as screaming as loud as I can or hitting myself or whatever it was, I used my anger and my rage. Wow. Um, in moments of rage, because I think about it like you realize like you kind of lose yourself in the moment. Like it like boils up. It's this thing that boom, boom, boom. And then it yeah. just ex- boom, explodes. Yeah. When you are in like moments of clarity, right? When you are calm afterwards right what did you think about your rage were you okay with it is it something you wanted to fix did you have a moment where you're like oh shit i've gone too far no or- i had a moment of like yeah i've gone too far um but i really had a smirk this mm-hmm. was like so like it was like a smirk of like you can't touch me yeah like it was like this more so like this narcissistic arrogant like i'm in control here i have the power here And I realized that my rage did give me that power to reclaim control of any vulnerable situation. And so it was almost like this invincibility, if that's a word, being feeling like invincible um, Mm. that I walked away with. Protection mechanism. Oh, it was a massive protection mechanism. I I never saw it like that. And what's interesting is I remember 
I went and they, they forced me to go see a psychologist at West Point. And I started talking about like, this is what I'm feeling. And the psychologist was like, and the therapist was kind of like, well, I would love to, you know, prescribe you some meds. You know, I think this will really help you based on what you're explaining to me. And my first question to the therapist psychologist was, will this affect my rage? Mm. Because I can't lose my rage. Yeah. And I remember just her, the look on her face was so perplexed. Like you're missing it, son. <laughs> like yeah. you're really missing it. And I'm like, no, like, and so I went home and I remember flushing them all down the toilet because I didn't trust her. And I knew that this was yeah. going to take away or affect my rage. Wow. Um, saying, so this all, all, make, saying all this stuff is like, God damn, I've come a long way. <laughs> yeah, you really have. You really have. And so, it, you know, sounds like, you know, we're almost, you know, you're getting through West Point, you're the stud football player, right? You do end up, end up getting drafted. And it seems like we're almost at the turning point, right? Yeah. So tell me about like, what was, do you, do you have any, like, I mean, cause getting drafted in the NFL, that's really freaking cool. And like, not too many people want that. And that's such a dream for so many people. Do you have any like positive celebratory moments during that process? Yeah, I think getting drafted was absolutely amazing. I was there with my best friend who happened to be like just the best man at my wedding here recently. Yeah. And we all got, you know, ESPN picked us up because I did E60 with Rachel Nichols. If you're familiar with that show, um, yeah, I was cool. on it at first. So they, they, I started getting a lot of coverage my senior year because now I'm like, I'm the number six strong safety in the entire Division One college football. So I'm on every draft board, you know, teams are yeah. coming around working out. And now there's a lot of talk and a lot of publicity and West Point's loving it, right? Because we're a division one team, we're a division one school, and we want to recruit better student athletes, right? That sure. can now, now we have this a great marketing point of like, oh, you can get drafted and serve simultaneously. Here's a kid that's doing it. And so I was just on front and center stage and it was amazing. Like I had the time of my life getting picked up by West Point or by ESPN me and Jordan, them taking us to Radio City Music Hall, me being featured all day throughout the draft. Um, and that was just an incredible moment. And then whenever Roger Goodell walks up on stage on the second day of the draft, I got picked up in the seventh round. And he walks up on the stage and he, you know, only announces the first round picks. And he right. walks up and he announces my name. And an entire Radio City Music Hall is chanting my name. And they're like screaming at the top of their lungs because I was like the underdog story of the whole draft and being paraded around. And so people were like rooting for me, like, yes, is he going to get picked? Is he going to get picked? And so yeah. that was such a surreal moment, man. Um, but what was crazy is afterwards, I had just gotten drafted. I got picked. I was driving Who picked home. you up? Uh, Detroit. Detroit, gotcha. Yeah. So I was in the limo going back to West Point. And I'm just sitting there looking at my phone with over like 400 messages you know, it was ran out of space, you know, all the social media pings. And I was like, this is it. Like my entire life, I've been waiting to be seen. I've been waiting to find significance. I've been waiting to find belonging. And now everybody wants to be my friend. Now everybody loves me. Everybody supports me. And I had this moment where I was just like, holy shit, like this is everything I've been craving in life. And I got home. I went to bed. I laid on my bed at West Point that night. And then all of a sudden, it was like the lights came on and I was like, fuck, what if I'm not good enough? Mm. 
And that was the first night that I had experienced probably arguably the worst panic attack of my life. Wow. The worst. And I remember crawling out of bed and I couldn't catch my breath. Everything was going blurry. I thought I was dying and I crawled into the bathroom, which was community and it was like a community showers. And I just was able to reach up and turn on four or five of the showers. And I just sobbed and I turned on the showers so that the sound would kind of, uh, you know, blur out my, my right. sobbing wells because I didn't want anybody to know like the pain that I was in and the torment. But it was the first time that I was like, fuck, everybody knows me now. Everybody's watching me now. Everybody's rooting for me now. Like, what if I'm not good enough? Yeah. And it really ties back to that moment when you're six of being exposed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. 100%. Absolutely. So it's this childhood wound of being six years old and being seen and getting laughed at. And so the weight of that, you know, and so that's why, you know, on this podcast, we talk so much about the power of our stories. Mm-hmm. You know, there was, there was a brief moment in time when you were six, it lasted a couple of seconds. And, you know, 20 years later, you know, 15 years later, it's, causing you to have the most anxiety panic the night you should be celebrating, celebrating. right <laughs> right you're sobbing in the bathroom that's the power of what happens when we don't heal our stories um powerful stuff Gib. thank you um so you go into the nfl right because i do eventually want to get into your story yeah. about how you eventually moved to canada and whatnot yeah. right so tell us what kind of what, what what was your nfl stint like and, and when was the breaking point well the nfl was interesting because i I now am in the league. Well, let me say it like this. I don't know if we talked about this when you were on my podcast, but I go to, I get picked up by Detroit. I graduate West Point real fast. I get commissioned as an officer. I get the permission to go and play and also serve simultaneously. So I'm going through OTAs with the team, which is basically off-season workout before training camp. And I played better football in sixth grade. <laughs> like yeah. I couldn't run in a straight line to save my life. Like I was just getting destroyed on all levels and it was an embarrassment and I, every day it was like, why the fuck do we draft you, Caleb? You know, it was ruthless, right? Yeah. So it was just constantly this narrative of not enough, not enough, not enough, not enough. And I knew that I was not going to make the team. I was so yeah. like just traumatized that holy shit, everybody's watching me and I am, I'm not going to make the team. And then the day of my first NFL contract signing, the day that training camp was supposed to start, we get a phone call. I get a phone call notifying me that I have to get to the stadium immediately four hours before, excuse me, four hours before I was scheduled to sign my contract. And my agent was like, get to the stadium. And I'm like, why? So I go to the stadium. Something's happening. I'm like, shit. So I go to the stadium. They direct me to this team meeting room where I walk into this team meeting room and the owner, head coach, CEO, everybody that's anybody, the VP, all of the people who are important are in this meeting room. And I'm like, fuck. And then that's when they had flown in a government official to notify me that the, my chances of playing in the NFL are over, that the, the military's alternative service obligation policy that they created my sophomore year at West Point, whenever I became like the sixth best safety in, in college football, they created this new policy that was going to allow us to pursue professional sports. Well, somebody at the Pentagon, high-ranking government official, called it bullshit and revoked it and rescinded it the day hours before I was supposed to sign my first contract. So I had to report back to active duty immediately. What? And I was the, I was thrilled. I was Mm. fucking ecstatic that I couldn't play in the NFL because I just saved my face. 
Like I just got a get out of jail free car from being exposed as somebody Holy that doesn't shit. have what it takes. And I knew that. And so here I am now front story of ESPN on yeah. day one of training camp, getting all of this worldwide uh, uh, national attention. And I am finding all of this attention and I still don't have to be exposed as somebody that doesn't have what it takes. So I'm loving life now. And so to kind of fast forward to the story is they basically rewrote this policy that says after three years, I can apply for an early release if I have another professional contract. So for three years, I tell myself, cause I know what to expect now. I tell myself, I've got to become the biggest, the fastest, the fucking strong. I got to become Captain America in every area of my life to make sure. sure that I am ready to go when I step foot on that football field. And so I doubled down on my skills. I doubled down on my talent. Like I become the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest I've ever become in my life. I spent some time with the USA bobsledding team. Like I've done all these things to prepare for the moment that I get back into the NFL if I'm given that chance. And so they're still covering my story for those three years. They're covering it. And then when the three years are up, Detroit flies me back out. It's a new coaching staff. They fly me out. They work me out and they give me a free agent deal. I'm by all measures and all standards, I'm testing out of the water because I am big. I am fast. Yeah. and I'm wrong. And so I look unstoppable on paper and I think I'm unstoppable now. Like I've gotten over this fear of not being good enough. Like I've gotten over this fear. Like I'm going to get out there and just crush it, bro. The day of my first, my first NFL training camp practice, I walked onto that field and I vomited everywhere. Mm. And I remember saying to myself, I'm fucked. And it was when I realized that, holy shit, I'm the biggest, the fastest, and the strongest that I've ever been, but I've never been so afraid of being exposed in my life. And I had this moment for maybe the first moment in my life where I can't outrun the shame. Yeah. I can't outrun the shame. Like I, I can't outperform this shame. And so my NFL career was this very fickle up and down career where this is no, no shit, trying to be good enough to be on a team. So that I could go out and get all the perks of being on an NFL team, all the love, all the exceptions. So, so I can get that craving fixed, but not good enough to play on Sundays. Because if I played on Sundays, I risked You're not being, being good enough. Being yeah, you risked being seen. Wow. So I literally lived in this middle ground of straddling this line and I fucking hated myself because of it. And I started to hate myself like, in such a grave way that the self-destruction that proceeded afterwards of like substance abuse, mm -hmm. staying up for 28, four hours, going to parties, staying high by ripping lines and then going to NFL, going to practice the next morning with no sleep. Like I was self-destructing because I hated myself, but I didn't have the courage to walk away. I didn't have the courage to ask for help. I was trying to blow up my life so that I was yeah. forced out of this life. And that NFL, that, that was my, my NFL experience for three years. And I woke up one morning after a party and I knew like, if something doesn't change and change soon, like it's a matter of time before my parents get a phone call notifying them that their son is no longer with them. Like I was actively trying to kill yeah. myself. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's like you're a ticking time bomb, right? Ticking time bomb. So what was, yeah. What was the moment, right? Where you were like, okay, something needs to change. 
Yeah. Like I, if I continue down this path, I will die. You know, what, yeah. what, what was the turning point for you? I think it was when I, when I signed with the Kansas city chiefs. So I was with Detroit for a year and a half. Then I went to Indianapolis, which I knew was going to be short lived. And then I went to Kansas city. When I got to Kansas city, man, I felt like the, the cloud has moved. Like I could feel sunshine in my life. Like I felt mm. like, Oh my gosh, like this is a good fit for me. Like my time in the NFL up to now is like a square peg trying to fit in a round hole. And I'm just like, finally, I feel like I belong in Kansas City. I, I vibe with some of my teammates. The coach, the the owner loves me for whatever. The, yeah, the VP, the president of the organization loved me. And he was the one that brought me in because he loved West Point guys and all this stuff. So I felt like I had a place. And then I remember my first day in the NFL at, with the Kansas City Chiefs, my first practice with them, I crushed it i had the most amazing practice and practice in the league is like your currency like it's it's the way that you you make it or break it it's all about practice and we watch film intensely right and so leading up to this moment like usually watching caleb on a film was like it was a panic inducing experience because it was just like watch caleb fuck up moment after moment after moment after moment right and so now i'm ecstatic because i just crushed this practice and so when we go to film i'm feeling good Cause we're about to watch myself where I'm about to watch myself really crush it. And I remember the film starts to play and then I'm on the field and then the coach pauses the film after watching this play, which I am like, yes, like, hell yeah. You know, like I just did it. And the coach says, where's the new guy at? And I'm like, I'm right here, coach. And then he's like, basically stand up. And I stood up and he proceeded to crush me. Like, if you ever do this again, you'll never see this is not how we do things here. And he was trying to just make a point to be like, like, you know, maybe to dehumanize me a little bit, to get me to fall into line, to do his way of coaching, which was bullshit, but to really practice his way of coaching and how he ran the team. And he just completely just picked apart every aspect of that play. And I had this moment of being like, fuck, like, I just knew at the deepest part of my being that good enough was never going to be good enough. Mm. I had this like out of body kind of moment where I was like, holy shit, I could see myself 20 years from now, even if I made it to the hall of fame, it was still not going to be enough. And I felt that like, I really, really felt it. And I had this moment of like something, I am chasing a carrot that I can never catch. I am chasing something that I will never be able to satisfy. Something's missing here. And then that void and not having the emotional tools to really process that void led me down the self-destruction behavior. And that's when I got cut for the final time shortly after that moment. And I was like, I'm done. My agent said the Falcons wanted to bring me in. I'm like, sir, I'm done. Like, I got to go figure out who the fuck Caleb Campbell really is and what's going on in my life because I can't exist like this any longer. Yeah. And I can't imagine the magnitude of that internal conversation because your whole life your identity is wrapped around football, right? A performance. Right. Performance, football, West Point. And so all of a sudden that's, you know, starting to strip away. Yeah. I'm sure that was probably a scary moment of like, I don't know who I am and what's going on. Yeah. It's debilitating. Yeah. <laughs> it was so debilitating to the point where I knew enough. Cause I, again, I think it's important to recognize at this moment in my life, I am the least emotionally aware person you've ever met. I haven't had a day of therapy. I don't know how to name my feelings. I don't know how to observe my thoughts. I know nothing about self-growth or emotional wellness or awareness or anything. And I just had this moment of like, I can't just say yes to a West Point job opportunity now because I'm going to just create another football. Yeah. I'm same going cycle. To just, 
it's going to be the same cycle, which I think is like grace. The grace of God of the universe was like bestowed upon me in that day to see that because I was, it would have been so easy for me, easy for me to just jump into a new career and just create the same cycle. And I said, no, I got to break the cycle. And that's when I was drunk one night sitting on Twitter in my aunt's basement, having a self-pity party. And I come across a series of tweets from a church in Canada. And at this time, I have never been to church since I left high school. God, I'm still like got this like idea of like, this is God's plan for my life. So a lot of that walking away from football was actually turning my back on God. Mm. I was subconsciously kind of in that experience, even though I wouldn't be able to verbalize it at this time. And I find this church and the talking about essentially like we try, this church was tweeting this series of tweets, essentially saying like, we're trying to live a resurrected life but we're resuscitating old ways. Like we're trying to resuscitate an old life when what we have to do is we have to die. Like what areas of your life need to die? And like, they were just talking about this death precedes life, death precedes life. And I was like, holy shit, that's me. Like, this is where it was like this moment where I was like, you finally put language to what I'm feeling. I'm going through this metaphorical death. And I don't know how to navigate it. So I packed my bags within two days and I drove to this random ass church in Canada, walked in and I said, y'all don't know me. I don't know you. I said, but I, I can't help. I can't help to shake this feeling that I'm supposed to be here. Can you help me? Can you help me? And I remember the pastor who became a mentor of mine simply said, yeah. And that's when I started to literally sleep on a basement floor in a boiler room and became a janitor of a church so that I could be guided down this process of metaphorically dying. Wow. And I love that you brought that up because you know, I grew up Christian as well, mm-hmm. grew up Mormon, but the two parts of the Bible that I actually really, really agree with, and you know, my relationship to God is completely different back then, but it's you know, the two things I agree with is A, you must die to be reborn. Yes. And B, the kingdom is within you. Yes. Come right? on, man. Those are, That's my those those are the two things I still yes. really, really believe in. So all of a sudden, so you go up to Canada, you're like, okay, there's a part, there's multiple pieces of Caleb that needs to die, right? This pastor becomes your mentor. So when you're working at this church, like what was your schedule? Like, were you like cleaning? Were you doing, you know, scripture mm-hmm. study? Were you doing one-on-one, you know, mentorship? What, what was that like? And how long were you up there for? All of the above, actually. It was, um, I would do like intensive, um, what we would call like, uh, inner like basically cbt cognitive behavioral therapy sessions Mm. um once every week or once every two weeks then they would be like these two three sometimes four hour sessions of just like going back to early childhood memories feeling the feelings rewriting the scripts and all this stuff and that would like then take me throughout the rest of the week where i would just be like meditating and practicing stillness and meditating and just getting these new belief systems that were um just new belief systems that were like, literally I could tangibly taste the difference in life. I felt more free. And then on top of that, I would just be cleaning the church. I would be helping out wherever I could help out, um, you know, parking cars for the elderly, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just leading anything that I was asked to lead. And so I, it was just this weird. And I think it was so important for me to go from playing in the NFL to literally cleaning toilets at a church. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was so important for me, but what was most important about that community, it wasn't about the church. Cause I often tell that part of my story and they're like, Oh, so you're like all of, like, it's God focused, you know? 
Yeah, but that was actually the beginning of me being reacquainted with God. And then there from that place, almost deconstructing who I thought God was my entire life, which actually was crippling me in more ways than I could imagine. But what that community did for me and what it was so important about it is it gave me a safe ecosystem to metaphorically begin to shed the layers of self-protection, the facades, so that I could get to the actual root of some of these narratives, some of these stories that were actually crippling every aspect of my life. And so that emotional safety is so fucking important yeah. because only when we feel emotionally safe would we be able to actually begin to shed the layers. Yeah, and address those things. And so, especially when you're working as, as people that, in my experience, people that are very unaware and not into the you know, self-development and, and trauma healing, when you do get into that space, there's usually an initial conversation where you connect some dots yes. that are like these big aha breakthroughs. I'll never be the same now that I've connected these dots. Yeah. Right. What were yeah. those moments for you? I think just early on when I was able to actually reframe my story that helped me understand why some of my self-destructive habits were actually self-protection. When I was like, I wasn't self-destructing, I was Mm self-protecting. I love myself so much that I would go to such great lengths to protect myself in such toxic ways, (laughs) such harmful ways because I actually love myself. It was that moment where I really reframed this like self-hatred to Mm self-compassion where I was like, wow, when I connected that dot, because I hated myself for blowing up my life. I hated myself for getting to the childhood dream and then just shitting the bed. I hated myself. But then early on, I was able to look back and be like, whoa, I wasn't self-destructing. I was self-protecting. And that, I think, created this. I tasted self-compassion, which helped birth uh, an experience of like, really tasting love, like, oh, like my life is being held. Oh, like I just felt the warmth in my fiber of my beings that came from that self-compassion that I think, you know, in scriptures is like taste and see that I am good. This was my first moment of like tasting and seeing that love is good. Amazing. That's so beautiful. Yeah. And it just, it resonates so deeply how we, we do extremes for self-protection, right? Mm -hmm. That show up in different ways. And so, Obviously, you're here. You're sounds like you're having incredible breakthroughs. When did you know how a how long were you there? And B, mm-hmm. when did you know it was time to go home? I was there for almost five, almost six years. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I had kind of made it up in my mind that this was the rest of my life. Anybody yeah. that walked through that church, um, I would be dedicating my life to helping them transform their pain and alchemize it into light because that's what happened to me and it changed my life. But then as I started to become, let me say like this, every day before healing was a day of self-betrayal. And it was a day that I disconnected myself from myself more and more and more, which creates the chaos. Yeah. As I begin to heal, right? And that self-compassion and that self-acceptance, it actually bridged the gap of disconnection. It dissolved the disconnection. And as I became more connected to myself through this healing, I started to be able to intuit the voice of God inside of me, the kingdom Mm -hmm. in me. Like I started to like really feel like, 
this is what's going on in my life. This is what's happening. Like spiritually, just like kind of, oh, I see differently now and I'm aligned and I feel the flow. I feel that it's all different. And so as I started to heal more and that became my more present reality, there was this deep knowing that this isn't the final place. Like this is not where I'm supposed to stay. And it was at odds to what my pastors or my leaders would say. So I got to this point of like contention where it was like my spiritual leaders, and this is very much church culture that I had to deconstruct. My spiritual leaders don't necessarily agree that where I'm supposed to go next or that, you know, that, you know, I'm supposed to move beyond this place in my life. They're still like, no, I think it's still something here for you. And I'm like, y'all have trained me this entire time I've been here to listen to the voice of God for me, myself. Yeah. And like, this is what the voice of God is saying. And I just got to this point where I was like, I can't, if I stay, I'm going to be regressing because if I stay, it's going to be an act of self-betrayal. Right. And I could feel that. And I knew that it was time to leave. And I just didn't know where, like I knew it was time to leave. And I was, was that scary? Hell yeah, that was scary because this became my family. This became my community. This became like the the way that I found belonging again, right? Like I, they helped me heal. They seen me at my worst and they still were there for me. They still accepted me. But the entire time I was there, I felt like something was still missing, right? I felt, I still, and it was interesting. And this is kind of, I'm, hopefully I'm, this makes sense. I was so quick to turn my healing into a performance to try to be enough, right? And I think that was an important part of my story. It's an important part of our story. If I can just heal, if I just get this measure of the layer of healing, this layer of healing, this layer of healing, this layer of healing, like I'll find what I'm looking for. I'll get to where I'm going. But there was always this deep dissatisfaction that no matter how much I healed, I couldn't shake this present feeling of it's still not enough. Like something is still missing. And I felt that void and that void for the longest time was something that I tried to destroy. Mm-hmm. It was something that I tried to eradicate. It was something that I found as my enemy. So more healing to fill the void, more healing to fill the void, but it would never fill. And then I remember I was reading uh, Barbara Brown Taylor one night and this all kind of coincides with like leaving the church because I was like, oh, the void is God wait, the void is God. And it like changed my perspective to where I wasn't trying to heal to fill this void anymore. I began to listen to the void, which was this dissatisfaction about like, there's not like something's missing here. And I need to like follow my heart wherever that's going. And I first step was into honoring the void and seeing this void as God was to honor my truth. And that was, I'm leaving. I don't know where I'm going but I'm leaving. And so I was able to create this physical separation between me and the church. And within three months, I get a random message on, no, within two months, I get a random message on Instagram. And it's a woman in LA. And she says, hey, I've got this company. I'm looking for a male voice. I just found your like kind of, because at this time I just started documenting my story on Instagram. And she's like, I just found your work on Instagram. I would love to fly you in. Me and my business partner would love to fly you in to talk about doing a project together. And they had this company with, you know, 80 people, 80 employees. It was a real deal. Like I'm not like flying into a trap or something. (laughs) It was like this real deal. But I get out to Los Angeles and the day that I land or the day I'm supposed to leave, 
which was like 24 hours later, I'm walking Venice Beach at 4, 5 a.m. And I was like, holy shit, I'm supposed to be in Los Angeles. Like I didn't come mm. here to work with her. I came here because I needed to see that Los Angeles was my next move. And I never would ever consider ever moving to Los Angeles. And so yeah. there's this divine interruption in my life where these people have flown me out and they landed me in Los Angeles. And that's when I realized it's time to go. I literally flew back, packed my car, drove across the country, had no plans. I just like, I know my heart is telling me to be in Los Angeles. And that was wow. the next step. In the journey. I love that because, you know, one quote that I live by is by Rumi where he says, once you start walking, the path will appear. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. how, because you followed your intuition and trusted this Instagram post and actually took action and jumped on a plane, yeah. the path appeared. It wasn't the yeah. path you thought, but the path appeared. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's just like paradox because I think David White, he talks about, you know, in a dark night, I awoke on a lonely road and my true way was wholly lost. In a dark night, I awoke on a lonely road where the true way was wholly lost. How do you know you're on the right path? Because the path disappears. Yeah. So it's this interesting thing. It's like, I have never felt more lost in my life. I don't see a clear direction anywhere, but in honoring my truth, the path appears. Yeah. And so it was just like this weird full circle kind of experience that really then became a core value of how I live and treat life. Yeah. And it seems like moving to LA, let me, because you took action and trusted your intuition and made a big bold move and like literally dropped into a new city overnight. Yeah. You know, it seems like the universe really rewarded you for making that change. Yes. And which was interesting because now I get to LA and now my journey is still continuing. Cause at this time, sure. I think it's important that we recognize that there's still, I'm still striving and trying to step into it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Mm. It's finally enough. And that's never been enough. No matter where I go, no matter where I am, it's enough. But now I'm trying to shift my, excuse me, I'm trying to shift my paradigm a little bit and learning how to accept that it's never going to be enough where this was a massive turning point in the healing story for me because I thought that the healing work was all about trying to get me to this new, bigger and better life, right? Like this, this idea of what's possible. I thought my healing journey was like this upward trajectory of getting to this place where it's finally going to be enough. But it was in LA where I realized that it's never going to be enough until I accept it. That is never mm. going to be enough. And so that took me down this downward descent, right, of learning how to radically accept my life as it is, which required just one layer of surrender after another layer of surrender after another layer of surrender. Like this was question, if my life never changes from this moment forward, is it enough? And for the longest time, I would say, is it enough? And then like, fuck, no, it's not enough. Like if my life never changes from this moment forward, I'm going to be pissed. But then each time I went down this journey of realizing that this is not an upward trajectory, this is a soulful descent. And now my journey, the game that I'm playing is a game of radical acceptance, which leads to deeper surrendering, which leads to deeper satisfaction, where I was like, oh, okay, so how do I surrender more? How do I let go more? How do I radically accept my life as it is? And man, it was in LA and I actually have a tattoo on me on June 3rd, 2019. It says it's finally enough where... Mm. I, it was the first time that I tasted what I call pure presence. And it was the first time, and I can break that down, but it was the first time after like just so much grief work 
of letting go of all the unmet expectations of what I thought my life was going to look like or should look like or where I thought I would be in life and really grieving that and processing that and letting that go, which dropped me into the present, which helped me radically accept life as it was. I tasted the freedom and I realized that, holy shit, it was the moment, June 3rd, 2019, the moment that I realized that the ground I've been trying to attain my entire life was the ground I've been standing on this entire time. And I tasted that. And I was like, this, this is it. Like this is, it's not this upward trajectory of creating this big and beautiful life. It's learning how to radically accept my life as it is today, which then unlocks my life. And it's just like, it, it was a complete, just to look back at that now from the six-year-old boy to now finally in LA where in the middle of the great Mecca of like making your life happen right? Doing more, being more, striving more. I'm in the center of all of this, trying to really let it all go. Like I'm done trying to make my life happen. And man, that, I'd say all that is just, it changed my life in the most unimaginable ways. Yeah. I've, I'm a big believer, you know, I've experienced, you know, a similar moment of presence where like you finally understand, you know, yeah. where, when it says be here now, right. And you have the <laughs> quiet mind. Right. Yeah. And I, I'm a firm believer that if people experience that even if it's for one second Mm. will never be the same like it's one of those moments where you're never the same ever again when you experience the true you know it's Eckhart Tolle you know Tolle um power of now right and you know and one thing that I share in my book that I resonate so much with is when you you know you said I always say learn to love the life you're living not the one you think you're supposed to be so good you know and it sounds like you have that moment of presence and really once, once you, you know, I, I get why you put a tattoo on it, you know, put your tattoo, <laughs> like my date was June 10th, 2017. Mm-hmm. Right. When I, when everything changed and it's just, you have a brief moment and you understand the present power of the now and being in the present moment and you're never the same ever again. It's, it's also like, it's reshaped the way that I see Christianity. It's reshaped yeah. the way that I see Jesus's messages. It's reshaped my, enti- like, Oh my God. Like it's, if, if we can taste this, if we can create safe ecosystems to help people go down this, this soulful descent and finding their one true life, right? Like the world's going to be a better place. The world will be 100% a better place. And I think, you know, I talk to a lot of people and they're like, like, where do we start? And one of my, David White, if you're not familiar with him, he's one of my favorite poets. And there's one of his poems, Sweet Belonging. And he says, Sometimes it takes the big dark night sky, right? The great night to find that one indescribable wedge of freedom written on the layers of your heart. Like it takes this big, bright night and that night is leaving home. Yeah. Like walking away from that, which is familiar, right? Mary Oliver talks about it in the journey. Like you have to be able to just walk away like that dissatisfaction And this is why so much of my speaking and the work that I do is helping people live emotionally honest lives. Because when we're not emotionally honest, we're literally living one act of self-betrayal after the other. Right. And And I think, yeah, go ahead. I would say say one thing that I, you know, to give credit to you. And I think, you know, a lot of people overlook in this journey because you hear people kind of going on these journeys, but I think people don't put enough emphasis is, you know, you were pushed up against a cliff, right? You had this intuition to jump whether it's to leave the church and move to LA, right? Yeah. And you jumped, right? And because yeah. you jumped, you were rewarded. Where I feel like a lot of people, you know, we res- people resonate with our stories, but one piece that gets overlooked is like, you got to jump, 
Yeah. Right. You got to jump. And if you don't Absolutely. jump, this, the, the journey can't begin. And so, you know, everything you're saying is ringing so true, but I just want to emphasize to our listeners here. It's like, take the risk, take the plunge, follow your intuition. You don't know where you're going to land. You're on the top of a cliff. You have no clue what's underneath you. You've got to just free fall. Yeah, man. And when you do, you get carried and caught by the grace of God. Come on. Yeah. That changes so, your entire life. Yeah. hundred percent. So how would you describe your, you know, how, how would you define God today? Right. And what is your relationship with that word? Yeah, I think um, it really is this sense of divine union, like oneness connected to all things. Like every, like, it's just this, it's, it is a different sense of connection to, to all things in my life. And I don't find, I think it was Thomas Merton. Was it Thomas Merton or William Blake that says, Jesus is God, so am I, and so are you. Mm. And I think that really sums up the way that I see God, I don't, I see Christ as a state of consciousness. Yeah. Right. And I, I see Jesus was Christ. Buddha was Christ. Allah was Christ. It's like this state of consciousness that drops us into this radical present. And as we abide in the present, we experience the presence, right? And it's in yeah. the present that we live in eternity It's in the present that we find heaven on earth It's in the present that we align our life into the sacred flow and then one, like everything is upheld and we are now in this thing of God because we are living directly connected to ourselves. And then therefore we're directly connected with God. And so it's just like, it's this oneness, it's this radical alignment, it's this union that is not centered on praying more, or worshiping more, or trying to get to this, to this place. It's just, it's the more I'm present, the more I experience this God thing. And I can't explain this God thing, but I can feel it. I can taste yeah. it. Yeah. And I love that because I think, you know, especially on your June 3rd moment and my June 10th moment, um, really what happens in my, you know, from my analysis is that your life from that moment on, your entire life becomes a spiritual experience. Every single moment yeah. is a spiritual experience. And really your life changes from this problem to solve to like this deeply spiritual experience to be had. I agree. That's and such then, a great, you said that, you said that on my podcast and yeah. I was just like, damn, that's, that's dope. Like that is what yeah. it is. It's an experience. Yeah. That one moment, once you experience the presence of consciousness in that experience, like you're never the same and everything changes from that moment on. Yeah. And you're such a true testament to that. So. Thank you. Thank you. It's incredible. Um, I do want to give you a shout out though, as we kind of wrap up, but like you guys just announced you're pregnant. <laughs> yeah we did <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, what was just, that what tell me about that it's like the last thing i ever would have thought for my life like i was on this yeah. mission of you know like doing more being more and achieving more and at whatever cost and that usually meant run, running over the people in my life um yeah. and then the more i've been able to live more present um uh i just i don't know we started creating space and i knew we were creating space when my wife and i moved to nashville we were creating like physical space but we we're actually really creating energetic space because moving to nashville it resulted in so much grief work of like leaving los angeles and even though my life changed in so many ways in los angeles i still thought that my life was going to be bigger and better. Like I'd maybe have a big brand or I'd be speaking at bigger events and all this stuff. And, and when we left Los Angeles, I, I just told my wife, I was like, I feel like a, I feel, I feel like I failed. 
Like I really mm-hmm. feel like I'm a big failure. And it was just this deeper surrendering, right? It, again, David Weiss says, give up all other worlds except the one which you belong to here and now. And I've mm-hmm. never been able to live in the world here and now because it's really, that's been hard for me, right? But the journey has been giving up all these other worlds, letting them go and being here now. And I was just laying behind me the second week or the third week in, in Nashville. And I had just gotten done doing like some deep journal work and grief work. And I did a ceremony of just like letting go of these unmet expectations. And I was laying down and I was like, holy shit, I don't want to be anywhere else other than where I am. Mm-hmm. I want to be here now. And I say all that because I remember getting up and going down and talking to my wife about it. And I was like, I feel like we are creating space for something massive to come into our lives. I feel like like there's some energetically, there's something big coming into our lives. <laughs> a few weeks later, surprise. Surprise, <laughs> here we go. But I don't think it's limited just to bring in, you know, a, a, a baby into the world. I think what we're doing career-wise, uh, my speaking, the investments that I've made in the last few weeks, like it's it's so apparent now that in order for us to increase our capacity to receive and expand our lives, we first have to create the energetic space to increase our capacity. And for me, that looked like actually creating distance, leaving Los Angeles and actually dealing with the grief around the unmet expectations and the unfulfilled dreams. And as I let go of all of that, there's a deeper surrendering to here and now, which then increased my capacity to receive what life has been trying to get in this entire time. Yeah. Well, it seems like you, you know, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm such a big believer in creating space energetically and also physically as well and how they actually are tied absolutely. together, right? They're absolutely. absolutely tied together. So the thing is like this move to Nashville for you as you're in a bigger space and creating room, you know, LA can feel so suffocating at times. Um, <laughs> absolutely. And so I, I think there's a, there's definitely a tie between the energetic space and the physical space. So I'm really excited LA. to see. I love LA. I'm going tomorrow. I'll be in LA tomorrow. Oh man. Um, yeah. So I love it. Um, I'm so excited for you, Caleb. It sounds like you're, you know, you, you found the momentum of life, right? You found the rhythm, you found the flow and you're riding the wave. Um, and I'm really excited to watch how this unfolds. How can those that are listening, you know, follow along on the journey? Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm starting to get active again on, uh, Instagram, but just Caleb underscore Campbell. Um, I'm, I'm probably going to start sharing and writing a little bit more there. Um, and then my website, Caleb at, or yeah, Caleb Campbell.me. And then I just started a recent kind of new podcast that you were on and it's called, you're doing a good job. And it's really kind of, you know, what would it look like to create a self-compassion revolution? I think it's the self-compassion can change our lives. I agree. Self-love is a superpower. There you go, man. Awesome. Caleb, well, thank you so much. Really inspiring story. Thank you for being vulnerable. I appreciate it. Um, All the love, my friend. Thanks for having me, Doug, man. Appreciate you. Much love.